Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. Back in September when Lorinda and I took our little vacay and we went over across the pond and we went to France, um, we saw a lot of churches in France. I mean, there were churches everywhere. Like huge cathedrals, uh, hundreds of years old. There were churches that we saw that are older than the United States. And it's absolutely amazing to see these these churches and the way that they've built them and all the things that they've done with them. And seeing the number of churches that we saw, and by and large, they're Catholic churches, you could make the assumption that France is a spiritual country. But that's not the case. Because those buildings do not represent the spiritual temperature of the country except for in a few cases, very few cases. There isn't any vitality or effectiveness or spiritual awareness whatsoever in, this, in the country of France. And for the most part, those buildings are often empty. The, the, all they are to France is architectural wonders. They want you to come and see this magnificent architectural Um, building that's been laid out in front of you so that you can see just how marvelous it is. The stained windows were absolutely unbelievable. All the things about the, the uh, the, the churches were absolutely amazing. But that's all it was, was just amazing architectural work. The services were ambiguous. The people had no idea what they were talking about. They were dry, appalling, dull, and dreary. And the, and, and the reason I bring that up is because the U.S. isn't that far behind France. A lot of churches are empty in the U.S. People aren't going to church like they used to. There's a sharp decline in attendance. And those who say that they regularly attend church, you know what regular attendance in church is now? It's twice a month. So if you're here more than twice a month, you're a fanatic. (laughs) Welcome to Wind River Community Church, you fanatics. Oh, by the way, you're deplorable too, so enjoy. So um, the the thing that really kind of stuck out to me is what it was that drove people away from the church in France and, and in the U.S. even. And there's two reasons, basic reasons, I believe, of that. First... Churches and even whole denominations oftentimes give themselves to a rationalistic unbelief, setting aside the glory and the light of the Scripture of God. God's Word doesn't mean anything to them anymore. It's just an old, archaic, dusty book that doesn't do anything for anybody. And so, one of the things that you can think about in in that country, as I walked around Paris particularly, I could see the terrible inroads of rationalism that had made this once very spiritual nation kind of a 
a shell of what it used to be, just a, a, a bag of bones, as it were. And the irony of it was that looking at the grandeur and the magnitude of the church buildings that were one time filled with people who were seeking God, they were expecting great things from God. But obviously, God's not even moving among France right now. And that's why we have my brothers in France. He planted a church in a city of 300,000 called Limoges. And he's the second largest evangelical church in a city of 300,000 people. And his church has about 75 or 80 people in it. And it's the second largest church in Limoges, evangelically speaking. So what happens is, is that where we used to expect great things of God, we don't see it happening anymore. It doesn't happen in the churches. There are denominations that are, are just getting together for social events. And they have this inroads of rationalism and secularism that is creeping its way into the church. And even though they claim themselves to be evangelical by nature and by orthodox, by the word, they subscribe to this orthodox statement of faith they too are a dead and dull and empty place where people come and find no meaning, no hope, no help for life. And so big question is, what has robbed their faith and vitality? It's what the church has become. The church has become a place of religion. And the difference between a, a, a church that is religious and a church that is placing itself under the authority and under the um, love of God and his word is that a religious place creates a list of rules and regulations that you have to abide by in order to maintain good standing within the church. Whereas in other churches that are saying it's all about Jesus, it's about his word, it's loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, that kind of a thing is what we see in all of Scripture. And if you were to take and write one word from Genesis to Revelation that would describe what the Bible's all about, it would be relationship. And that's what God's calling us into. He's calling us into relationship. But the problem is, is that you get into these orthodoxies which leads to a legalistic nature which has essentially pushed people out of the church because all of a sudden they don't want to be told that this is what you have to do. Matter of fact, as Paul wrote a letter to his beloved friend Timothy, he wrote two letters to him. In the second letter to Timothy, here's what he said to Timothy. He said, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here it is, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, it's what I said right we, we were beginning this talk, is we have to take the mask off, the appearance of godliness that we've put onto ourselves to make other people look at us and go like, 
man, that cat's got it all together. He knows what he's doing. Look how righteous and holy he is. And look how great he is. Man, that guy's real. I want to be like him someday. And the problem is, is all we're looking at is the outward appearance. And what's taking place on the inner man is this, this dying, this, this soul that has shriveled up and is not even recognizable because there is no work of God in their house, in their life. And, and that's the trouble with the church at Ephesus where Paul sent Timothy. He said to, to his young protege, he says, go to Ephesus and take care of the church because there's some things going on there that aren't good. And Paul was, was afraid of what was happening to his b- beloved Christ followers there is that they were getting sucked into something that was not of God. It was a different teaching that was leading people to believe a different thing. It was actually leading them uh, into a religion. It was leading them into legalism, and it was taking them away from the love of God. It was creating this whole thing in them. And so what Paul does in the first letter to Timothy, he gives them these passages that we're going to look at this morning, and he's dealing with the problem of how to avoid the awful lawless, or I got to say, this this is a tongue twister for me. Awful lawfulness of unlawful law. Can I say that again? I doubt it. You get it one time, that's it, sorry. We're moving on. In other words, what's happening is they're stepping onto a slippery slope of looking at the Word of God and saying, it's not that important. It doesn't do that much. It's okay, but it's not all there is. So here's what he wrote to Timothy in his first letter. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Here's what the Apostle Paul deals with in in this whole thing. There are four simple, clear propositions that he's laying out for us today. And so the first one is, is that the law is both good and useful in our life with Christ. It's the law that is useful. And so that's, that's the big picture that he wants us to understand is that the law is useful, that it's there for us, and that it's not something that we need to, to avoid, but it's something that we need to step into. Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That immediately does away with the claim of many, and I say this, Christians, people who go to church, stand in a church, sing some songs, maybe open up their Bible once in a while, and the misunderstanding of many that we are so completely delivered from the law that we have nothing to do with it anymore. Because, once we, because what we look at is we are saved by what? Grace. Not the law, but we're saved by grace. And so they're going like, because we're saved by grace, because we live in a world in the era of grace, the law has nothing over me anymore. The law has nothing for me anymore. And so they devoid themselves completely of the law. 
But what Paul says, that's not the case. The case is that the law is good and useful, but it has to be used rightly. So the law, lawfully used, is what we're going to focus on this morning. The law is good, and of course it's good because God himself gave it to us. God doesn't give us bad stuff. God don't give us junk. God doesn't give us... I was about ready to say crap, but I don't think you can say that in church. So I won't say crap. He just gives us, you know, bad stuff. He doesn't do that. That's not who God is. Um, the, the thing that is really striking about the law is that in all of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, those Ten Commandments are the only part of the whole Bible that God wrote himself. You know, you remember when Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and it was covered with this veil of this thick cloud of God, and God wrote on stone tablets. God wrote it himself. I, I think he just took his finger and did this because God can do anything. And he wrote it, and he gave it to Moses and says, here, now take this and share this with the people. And Moses goes down the mountain, and he sees the people, and in his anger, what does he do? He breaks the tablets. And he's going like, oh, nuts. Now I've got to go back and tell God I broke his tablets. Back up the mountain. He hikes back up there. Uh, lost my temper. You know those people you, you told me to lead? They're idiots, by the way. You should strike them all dead. Can you write me a new set of laws? God says, absolutely no problem. I'll do it for you, Moses. And so he sends this law down, these Ten Commandments, and, and, and what we look at that at, at first glance is that these tablets, those Ten Commandments, you will discover that they reflect the character and holiness of God. That's the great thing about the Ten Commandments. They tell us a lot about who God is. They are an expression of the life of God, both in its outward behavior and its inward attitudes. That is why the law will never change. The law represents God's righteous demands for human behavior. Anywhere on earth, you will find God's law for human behavior. And it's written on the hearts of people. That's why in Romans chapter 2, that's where Paul contends and says that even people who don't have the written law of God have it written on their hearts and they will still be accountable to that law. Here's what he says in Romans 2. For when Gentiles, do you know what gen, who Gentiles are? Those are people who are far from God. They don't walk with God. They don't love God. When you, when you see the word Gentile in the Bible, it's referring to people who know nothing about God, have nothing to do with God, don't worship God. So he says, So uh, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, you know, when, when people go like, well, it's just not fair of God because not everybody's going to have the Bible to read. Not everybody's going to have a chance to know. Oh, well, what Paul says, well, that's not true. What Paul's saying is, is that God actually wrote the law on the heart. So, you know, that's, that's the big point that we have, have going on. That's why all human laws, laws that make 
for control of our behavior. It, you find it in the city, you find it in the state, you find it nationally. They're all based on and reflect the Ten Commandments because what's one of the primary laws we, we adhere to in this country? You can't murder somebody. And that's one of the Ten Commandments. Did you know it's against the law to go crawl across your neighbor's fence and steal his patio furniture? The law says that's stealing. So does God. So these laws have been written to help us. They, they've been given to us. And, and what Paul says is that the law is altogether just and good. And further, law is useful. Even for a Christ follower, the law has a place in our lives. Paul says, if anyone uses it lawfully, that's what he talks about the law. Not everything about the law carries over into the life with, into our lives with Christ. And Paul will point out in just a few minutes. But what, where the law is of use in this life with Jesus is where we're going to see it when he brings it to our attention out of Romans 7. And this is why Paul wrote Romans 7. He says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the, a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That phrase of released from the law doesn't mean, however, that the law has no use to the disciple of Jesus. He makes that point very clear. Jesus himself made this point clear because here's what Jesus talked about is that he says in Matthew 5, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets for I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes on the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Start teaching the word of God to your kids to your grandkids, to your neighbors. Start teaching the Word of God to your wife. Start teaching the Word of God to your mom and dad. You want to be great in God's kingdom? That's how it happens. And so these words ought to make very clear what Paul insists on here in his first letter to Timothy, that the law is not eliminated. The law will always be there because it is holy, just, and good. It reflects the character of God, so it does not have a part in our... So it does have a part in our spirit-filled experience. At the beginning of the talk, we ask for the Holy Spirit in our prayer. We ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. What's he illuminating our minds on? He's illuminating our minds on God's word. Not on my stuff, but on what God has to say. What I have to say really isn't that important. But what God has to say is highly important. Matter of fact, what God has to say is the difference between life and death. What I have to say is the difference between getting to lunch at 12 or 12.30. So it's God's word that has a, an important part in our lives. And so the next proposition helps us to identify what part of it is. Paul says, second proposition, Paul says, the law is not made for the just or the righteous. I think righteous is a better word there because um, it's better 
because the key component of the gospel is that we are given the righteousness of Christ. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul argued that the righteousness of God is made manifest in the gospel. It is for all who believe. Paul says this is the status we have when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, it's no longer your righteousness. It's, it's not the good things that you've done. It's only on what Christ has done for you. Because the Bible tells us that all of our righteous acts, all of our righteous deeds, all those good things that we've done, matter of fact, if we, if we come to God and go like, you don't know how many shoeboxes I sent to, to, to little kids in South America through Samaritan's Purse. That was my good righteous act, God. How can you say I'm not righteous? God's going to go like, because that little act of righteousness in your own mind, that is nothing but like filthy rags compared to my holiness. So the law is not made for righteous men because we have the righteousness of Christ. When we come to salvation in Christ, when we step into faith with Christ, we have Christ's righteousness. And so we don't have to worry about, you know, the law making us righteous. Many church-going people have deduced from this idea that once you become a Christian, you have no need to refer to the law of Moses any longer. But Paul is correcting that idea here. He wants us to understand that there is lawful use of the law in our faith in the, and in our experience with Jesus, but that the law was not made for those who were already made righteous by Christ. It still plays a part, but it's not a part to make us righteous. Only Jesus makes us righteous. And the reason, of course, is that the of, uh, is that what the law requires has already been achieved when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the great words out of Roman, Romans chapter 8 that Paul gives to us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their things on the mind, their, their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is what God is giving to us. It is clear that the law, the law requires something from us. It has a righteous standard. It insists that men... Uh, behave themselves. That is what God's law is all about. Not because God likes that, but because it's necessary for fulfilling the possibility and potential of human life. Sin eliminates that, puts us back under the bondage, and makes us slaves again. But the law says that is never God's intention. He wants to free us. Sin enslaves us. So there's a certain righteousness required. Those verses in chapter 8 of, of Romans tells us that when we believe in Jesus who died upon the cross for us and we understand that we were involved in that death and in His resurrection, we are given a righteousness as a gift to us. It's handed directly to... It's like this box contains righteousness in it, and here it is. It is for you. This is what Jesus is saying. Here's my righteousness. Do you want it? 
You can't say, let me go out and feed the poor and care for the widows first, and then I'll come back because then I will feel like I have earned your righteousness. God's going like, son, you don't get it. You cannot earn this. This is a gift. You don't earn gifts. You receive gifts. My righteousness is a gift for you. And that gift comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what righteousness is. That's what the gift of God is for us. And, and, and Paul says to the, his letter to the Corinthian church, he says this, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Through righteousness, through the righteousness of Christ. The spirit is righteous, so our human spirits have already been made righteous in Jesus. For that reason, the law has nothing to say to us who are Christ followers about fulfilling righteous standards. Our nature is now changed. When you come to faith in Christ, our nature is now changed. That's the good news. That's the glorious gospel of our blessed God. We are no longer under the law as a means of winning approval from God. The, the law doesn't help us earn our approval, our right standing with God. He's already given us his approval. We already have it in Christ. Who then was the law given for? Paul goes on to say that the law is not laid down for the just, but for. And then he goes on to list two groups of people for whom the law is given. The first group of three pairs listed, they constitute one group. It has to do with what people are, not what they do. So notice, here's what Paul says, not a word about what people do, but rather what they are. Here's what they are. They are lawless, lawless and disobedient. They are ungodly and sinners. They are unholy and profane. Those terms describe an attitude, an outlook on life, basic fundamental nature. In other words, the unregenerate, to, the unregenerate heart of the person is that. I just use this word unregenerate and if you're like most people sitting in church, you're going like, I don't know what he just said. I have no clue what unregenerate means. I don't know what regenerate means. It's a theological term. The pastors who are, who are just blowing through stuff like to throw out there, it actually costs about 10 cents. You come see me afterwards, pay for it, I'll give it to you. But let me tell you what regenerate means because if you are alive in Christ, you have a regenerate heart. And so what it means to have a regenerate heart means that you have this restitution of all things. It denotes there's a change of heart, becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, having a renewal of the mind. That's what it means to, to be regenerated by Jesus. That's where you go to. And, and, and the problem is, is that nobody's born regenerate. We're all born unregenerate. There are no expectations. Now, this last summer, we had Carissa's wedding. My youngest daughter, she got married here in Lander. And, and so all of the other kids came, which meant that our grandkids came. We didn't care about the other kids. We just cared about the grandkids. But the other kids had to bring the grandkids. Are you following me with that one? 
We love our kids. They can stay home, send the grandkids. But they had to bring them. Now, the thing about my granddaughters, I have two of them. One's two and a half, and the other one's three. And if you know anything about a two and a half and a three-year-old, they have an unregenerate heart. Because one of my granddaughters, I'm not going to tell you which one, it could have been either one of them, it might have been both of them at the same time, through this fit where they're screaming and yelling and madder than hornets, and I have a hold of them, and the arms are flailing. I think she was hoping she had a knife that she could stab me with. Because that's the unregenerate heart. You see, we're all born that way. The good news is, is I'm much bigger than she was, and I could put a bear hug on her, and she was tied down, and, and that dirty, rotten little sinner had to put up with it. But her intent was murderous. It really was. And now that the law is made for that kind of a thing, it has something very important to do with us, which we will look at in just a moment. The next classification has to do with deeds. Remember, the first one was about who they are. This one's about what they do. And it starts with those who strike their fathers and mothers. I'm going to stop right there because I want to explain this to you. In the Old Testament, under the Levitical law, if your child, and it doesn't matter what age they are, if they were to strike mom or dad, that was, under the Levitical law, a capital crime. In other words, little 14-year-old who got ma mad at mom and slapped her across the face, the elders would drag little Johnny out beside the city gates, and they would pick up rocks about this big, and they'd stone that little punk to death. It was a serious thing. It was such a disrespectful, disobedient, and, and rude, and, I mean, it flew in the face of God. Now, aren't you thankful for grace? We have grace. So, so Paul's talking about, here's the classification of the deeds. It starts with those who strike their fathers or mothers. It talks, he's referring to murderers. Then it deals with sexual wrongs, sexual immorality. And what that means when he says sexual immorality, right here, it means fornication. That means having sex outside the confines of marriage that you have defiled the marriage bed and you're just sexing it up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend regardless of what God's word has to say. Or you are an adulterer and you've entered into an adulterous relationship. That is sexual immorality. And then there are the homosexuals. You understand what that means. And then there are the enslavers. Let me help you understand enslavers. When Paul says enslavers, what he's talking about are people who kidnap the helpless. That's an enslaver. We call it human trafficking today. You see, the Bible talks about everything that is important to us. We're concerned about human trafficking. Well, the Bible talks about it right here. He says that. And then he says liars and perjurers. That last term is applied to an intensified form of lying where you say you're going to tell the truth and even take an oath to tell the truth, but you still tell a lie. You're a perjurer. Then Paul lists them all together in these words. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, 
he puts it in another phrase, in another letter that he wrote. He says, if you know to do the right thing, the good thing, and you don't do it, to you is sin. I mean, this is boiling sin right down to the, the, the brass tacks, to the, 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 the cleanest picture you can get of it. If you know you're supposed to do something right and you don't do it, you've just sinned against God. The good news is you can repent. Hallelujah. So, in this list of deeds which the unregenerate do, the regenerate also do them. That's, and many of us have fallen into that category. We may not have been beating our parents or murderers or kidnappers or fornicators or any of the rest of that stuff, but what about liars? What about perjurers? And what, what about everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine? I'm guilty of that. And so are you. And we're regenerated by the blood of Jesus. We have been made new creatures in Christ, and yet we still do that stuff. And, and so the Ten Commandments, they're given to us to help us understand the character of God. They're designed to do three precise things. First, they reveal the only acceptable standard of behavior before God, both outward actions and inward thoughts. Second, they are given to us to make us, get this, this is going to blow some of your mind, the Ten Commandments were given to us to make us sin more, to increase our transgression against God. And that's hard for us to understand. And, and millions of people today read the Ten Commandments and they say, you know what? We just ought to do those things. They think that the law is given to them to help them um, stop sinning. But according to the word of God, that's not true. God gave the law to make them sin even more because there's a quality about sin that deceives us. There's a quality of your sin that deceives you. And here's what it looks like. Because what we do is we have a double standard. We use it against people one way, but against ourselves, we have a different standard for it. So it's like when you, you come and you say something like, you're prejudiced. And me, I just have convictions. You lost your temper and blew your top. I'm indulging in righteous indignation. You're greedy. I'm just trying to get ahead in life. We have this double standard for how we're going to apply God's word to our lives. Uh, for those people, it's sinful. For ourselves, I'm just doing the right thing. It just, it just, it's, you know, it's tough love. That's what it is. Con they convince themselves that they're not sinners. But the law comes in and it is so rigid, so unbending, that it makes them angry and rebellious. They do things they did not intend to do. And one day they wake up and they say, say to themselves, I can't believe I did that. It's like they wake up in the morning and they're seeing an instant replay of them ripping the helmet off of a quarterback and hitting him on the head with it. I just made that up. And the guy's going, and he's going like, I can't believe I did that. That was so wrong. That's what the law seeks to do to us. You know what, in James, and, and this is what I, how many people, I want you to put your hands up right now. How many people are attending a life group? Put your hand up. 
Get it up there high. Leave it up. Leave it up. Now, in your life group, keep your hand up if you're studying the book of James. Keep your hand up if you're studying the book of James. All right, all you guys that are studying the book of James, this is for you. Not that the rest of you get to check out for the next 30 seconds. Pay attention, because this is also for you. In the book of James, James 2 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Ha ha. I don't like that part. I'm going to cut it out of my Bible. Somebody wants one of my black pens so they can redact stuff in their Bible. Nope, don't like that one. Here's what it really helps us to understand. The law is one body of work, complete body of work. And so if you take one little sliver out of there and you tell one little white lie, you've broken it all. You're accountable for all of it. It's like I explained to our small group. It's like taking a fine piece of china that you really love and you break the handle off of it and a little chip about that wide comes off of it. You can't glue it and put it back together. The china used to be a fine piece of china, but now you broke one piece of it. It's no longer fine. It's trash. You can't use it. That's what, it, that's what James means. You become guilty of it all. The third thing the law does is that it demands punishment, even unto death. It shows no mercy. It will not let anybody off. That is what the law was intended to do. With the unregenerate, it does so in order that we might be, as Paul puts it, we were held captive under the law. By means of the law, we discover that there is no way out. There is something so wrong inside that we cannot behave. We can outwardly toe the line. We can make it look good. But inwardly, our thoughts, our attitudes are filled with viciousness, self-centeredness, and vileness of various sorts. But that is what the law was intended to do. Because at that point, we begin to listen to the good word that God has found a way in Christ Jesus to set us free. As Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3, he says the law becomes our guardian. It says, so then the law was our guardian until, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You all should have said hallelujah right there because that's the best news you're going to get this morning. Well, maybe not. There's more to come. Hang around. We'll get there. The law as a guardian is to keep us in custody, but it brings us to Christ. It does its work well. It is not an enemy, but a friend. But what about some in this second group who do those ugly things listed there? They, and yet they're regenerated. Their hearts have been changed by Christ. What about those guys? They've been born again. They've already been made righteous in spirit. And this is a very ugly list. And I have been shown a list of things by some people who have attended other church, and they said, this is what I have to agree to in order to become a member at the church. And the things that just shocked me about it is, is that on that list of things they had to agree to is they had to promise not to drink or smoke, or dance, or go to movies, 
or hang out with people who do. And, and I, I said, what they need to do is you need to add to this list, if you're going to sign this for that church, you need to reserve the right to indulge in malice, envy, jealousy, viciousness, and all other kinds of the sins of the saints. Because that's, that is what happens when we start to become religious. We make a, a list of rules of the do's and the don'ts, and we totally ignore what God's Word has to say to us. And that's where the sins of the saints, that's whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That is what we're talking about here. Why does the law say to people who indulge in... What does the law say to people who indulge in those things? I call those people the unrestored because what the law says to them is they need to be restored. They've already been regenerated. They need to be restored. But they're unrestored. And the law says restore them to an understanding who they really are in Christ. And so they've forgotten that. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 6.1 this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. A, a believer, the law says, has two of the three things it was sent to do in the first place. First, it helps define and recognize sin. It still applies to a standard of righteousness. It is still what God requires of us, even though we achieve it by another way. The law can help be the law can be helpful to believers. There are two examples of this in Paul's writings to the Corinthians. First, he says, In the law of Moses it is written, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? No. He says it's not for the oxen. It is for us. In other words, the law refers to an injustice that applies to people, not to just oxen. And that is that you must not deny benefit to someone who was involved in a work. Paul's writing this to the Corinthian church. He's using the law to help them understand that. He's using the law to help them to see what they are required to do. And that's what the law is for. It is a guide to what is right. In that sense, it is rightly used. The second is, is that it will increase righteousness. The reason a righteous person does unrighteous deeds is because his flesh has been deceived. In order to show him that he is deceived, the law comes to make him try harder not to do it, and thus in rebellion do more. That is what Paul is describing in Romans 7, 19 through 20, where he says, for I do not, this is, remember these verses? I call them the doo-doo verses. Remember those? Here's what it says. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Do you get it? That's, he's talking, this is Paul talking. Here's a guy that's an apostle. Here's a guy that's planted hundreds of churches. Thousands of people have come to Christ under him. And he's going, I still keep doing the things I don't want to do. But what's the hope in that message that Paul gives? He cries it out and tells us what, what it says. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he immediately gives the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus who delivers us from doing the things we don't want to do. And, and then comes the revelation of Romans 8, 
that we might begin to act on the basis not of an effort to try to correct our uh, determination that something is wrong in our life, but that we come to the fact that it is God working in us. So the third thing that the law was given can no longer apply to the believer. Here's the third thing. This doesn't apply to you if you are walking in Christ. It's that the law was, that was given cannot condemn us. If you are in Christ Jesus, the law will not condemn you. That's why Paul started Romans chapter 8 off with this great anthem. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, now the law that hangs over and is going to condemn and it's going to convict people who are unregenerated, who are enemies of God, who do not love God, who are Gentiles to God, it will convict, it will condemn those people, but it will not condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God's made this anthem, this declaration, this promise that because when we come to Christ, He removes our sin and He makes it as far as the east is from the west. It will never be brought up and used against you again. God is not keeping a little toolbox of your past failures and sins over here so that when you screw up again doing the same thing you just did last week, He pulls it back out and says, I knew you were going to do that again and He beat you over the head with the thing you confessed last week. That's not the way God operates. Now listen to me. There's this myth out there that God forgets our sins. That's a lie. God doesn't forget our sins. Because if God forgets our sins, then He's no longer God. What God does, because He's God, is He chooses no longer to bring them up and use them against us. He makes a choice to say, I'm not ever going to bring that up. I'm never going to use that against you. I am never going to bring that into your face again. We do that to each other all the time. Honey, you told me you weren't going to eat donuts anymore. What's that frosting on your chin? You lied to me. My wife would never say that to me. Because I'm not a cop. The law cannot insist on punishment. It cannot condemn us and make us feel we are subject to the wrath of God. It can no longer put us in that relationship to Him. God is now our loving Father. The fourth proposition that emerges from this passage we're looking at this morning is that the law in the life of a Christ follower, as Paul says, must be in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now that involves several things, and I'll be quick on them. The first thing, we must recognize that the spirit in an individual who has been born again has already been made righteous. You can not bring the law in to correct somebody's misdeeds by exhorting him to try harder or to behave himself. That will never work. He has been made righteous. When one of our brothers or sisters needs the gospel help, we are to show them the reality of God's word. What he is doing is wrong. We can say that. But remember, their heart is right. That is recognizing that there is a righteousness already there. At the very depths of, this, of his being, there is a hunger to be righteous. And, and so, too, that the lawful use of the law makes it 
makes its appeal. Then people can begin to act anew on what they already are. That is in accordance with the gospel. Now, the second thing that is in line with that is that the only form of punishment that is ever permitted in accordance with the gospel is ultimate separation or withdrawal from one who claims faith in Christ and is misbehaving. What we mean by that is somebody who stands up and says, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. And, and then we find that person that they are fraudulent with money, that they're stealing money from the church and they're doing all these things against the church and we come to them First of all, the person that finds out says, you know what, according to Matthew 18, I need to talk to you individually. This is, this, is what Paul, this is what Jesus told us to do. When you've got something going on, when you need to address somebody, you need to come to that person privately. You come and say, I noticed when I was walking by the offering plate that you were sifting through it, taking out cash. I was just making change for a 20. No, you weren't. You were stealing. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. Then you go, according to Jesus, and you get two or others to come with you because this person's not listening to you. So you get two or others to come with you, and these people are not on your side, and they're not on his side. They're on the side of the truth and grace of Jesus. So they listen to both people and then they say, you know what? We have video evidence to show you taking money out of the offering plate. You were stealing. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. So then what Jesus says after that is that if he will not listen to the two or three, he will not hear them. And if he refuses to listen to them, then take them to the church. And if and then let him be, you know, and if he doesn't listen to the church, and what we mean by that, when we say that in this building, when we say we're going to take you before the church, that's the elders. We're not going to stand up and make a public announcement that so-and-so has been stealing money out of the offering plate. We're not going to do that. But what we're going to do is we're going to have a very serious talk with that person. And then we're going to say, are you going to repent and are you going to repay? And if they say, I've done nothing wrong, I'm not going to repent, and I'm not going to repay, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile, one who does not love God, or a tax collector. He was talking to Jewish people, and they absolutely despised tax collectors, and here's what they would never do with a tax collector. They would never sit down and have a meal with a tax collector. They would never invite the tax collector into their home. They would never spend time with a tax collector or with a Gentile. Jesus says, someone who refuses to walk in the restored spirit of God and confess their sin and walk in righteousness, that person, after you have done the, what Jesus commands us to do in chapter 18 of Matthew, that after that happens, that person becomes like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, when you know it, when all of a sudden everybody goes like, we, we say, this is what's happened, we're not going to have fellowship with this person anymore. That, doesn't, that means that you don't get on the phone and go, hey, yeah, hey, dude, you want to go for lunch today? No, you don't do that. Because there is, 
there is this thing that God is doing and using the word, the law, to bring reconciliation to the heart. That's the whole purpose of Matthew 18, is to bring reconciliation to the person's heart. That's what God wants it to be done. And so, but here's what I want you to know. There's no penance. They don't have to pay their way back into it. There's no sanctions. We don't, you know, tell them not to, that, that they can't shop at somebody's store or anything like that. And, and of course, we don't do any executions anymore either. But what we do is we want them to be restored, and so we want them to come back to us. Uh, I'm just going to move on real quick here because there's a couple things I want to give to you as we close off. It, there is no set of laws or rules that can impact a life or bring vitality to your life. Rules can't do that. Laws can't do that. Only by people turning to the realization that they need a relationship with God, that they are born anew by the Spirit, filled with the righteousness of Christ, living under the law, under the love of God, that is what will change a person's heart. And I recently read this quote. This is what I want to finish with. One verse after. Laws, rules, and regulations define social morality. They are often very little help in the growth of personal morality. The reason for this is not hard to understand. A law may prevent me from robbing my neighbor, but no law can prevent me from coveting his possessions and thinking of a new and devious way of making them mine. A law can discourage me, if not prevent me, from abandoning my wife and children but it cannot stop me from making them miserable. A law can inhibit me from knifing an enemy, but it can do nothing if I merely hate him and make him feel my hate. The law, in short, can regulate my behavior within certain limits. It cannot cleanse my mind, nor purify my heart, nor neutralize the poison of my most worst intentions. The only thing that can accomplish this is the realization of the love of God that is already ours. It's already made for us. It is for us. That is why Romans 13.10 the apostle says this, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We must not go to another person holding up a set of rigid demands and say, shape up or ship out. That is to force them by sanctions. What we should do is to bring the word of God to them in gentleness and hope because the word of God brings correction. It gives hope for today and transformation for tomorrow. Then people will see what they need to do to reckon themselves dead to sin and alive to God. That is the lawful use of the law. That is what being an authentic Christ follower looks like. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that you will help us apply this practical details of our interaction with one another. Teach us that we are not lords running other people's affairs, but we are brothers and sisters deeply concerned and involved with their actions. 
We pray today, God, that we may recognize afresh the glorious good news that we have been made righteous in Christ Jesus. And we can live on that basis. Thank you for that impartation of love, which is a power to change. Father, I pray for all here today who may not have already stepped into that place where they recognize that they are regenerated, that their lives have been changed, that they have been transformed. I pray that your spirit would touch them this morning and call them to that place where they would say, I need Jesus to take my life. I need Jesus to control my life. I need Jesus to be the, the guide of everything I need, that I do not any longer live under the law, but I live under the cross of Christ and the forgiveness that is found in his blood on the cross. So I pray today, God, if there are people, if there's one who needs that today, that you would impart that grace to them. They would experience a newness with you. And so we commend them to you. We pray for your blessing upon them. We pray for the transformation of all of our hearts. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.